Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. On today's episode, my guest is Brittany Polat, the author of Tranquility Parenting, a guide to staying calm, mindful, and engaged. Brittany believes that anyone who's willing to reflect carefully on life can make progress towards inner peace and contentment. She has a PhD in Implied Linguistics, and her website is livinginagreement.com. In the conversation, we discuss searching for wisdom, finding tranquility, philosophy for life, the cardinal virtues, wisdom in daily life, and much more. Brittany is also putting on an upcoming online conference called Stoics Care, There's a link in the show notes. I encourage you to check it out. Now, please welcome the wise and gracious Brittany Polat. Well, I am excited as we were chatting about before hit record here, really enjoying uh, your book, Tranquility Parenting. I'm a parent with a three-year-old and a nine-year-old, so need all the help that I can get, like most parents out there, so I'm really enjoying it. To begin, I wanted to maybe go back several years. I'm really curious about this day or this moment when you're sitting in front of the computer and you type in the Amazon search bar the word wisdom. Sure, yes. Well, I think this is a typical shipwreck moment, which is characteristic of Stoicism. You know, Zeno had his shipwreck moment, which brought him to the shores of Athens and philosophy. And so I think a lot of us, at least those of us coming to philosophy in midlife, I think many of us can relate to that. You know, we've had life experiences that have shown us, you know, you can't just always sail through life happily without thinking about things. You really need to to sit down and think about it carefully and get your life together. So my shipwreck moment came after I had had my three children. We had moved to a new town where I didn't have any support, you know, no family or friends. I had kind of left my career behind to focus on the children. So it was it was a very, very difficult time emotionally as far as my career was going, just everything all together. And as you know, being a parent is so exhausting emotionally, physically. One thing I didn't realize before I had kids was just the physical work that it requires, you know? So it, it was it was a very dark time and, and I looked at different wisdom to wisdom traditions and nothing was really working for me you know I, I looked at psychology I looked at Buddhism some some different things like that and then this moment where I was online I typed in wisdom I was looking through several things and Bill Irvin's book a guide to the good life the ancient art of stoic joy and I'm so happy that you just had Bill Irvin on your podcast <laughs> So that's that's awesome. But um, it was his book that really jumped out at me. Somehow it came up, the algorithms, and I, I, my curiosity was piqued. Oh, Stoic Joy, what is this? So I read his description. I somehow linked over to Donald Robertson's book, uh, I think Stoicism and the Art of Happiness. And then, you know, it, I noticed a trend here, the book by Ryan Holiday and Stephen Hanselman about a happy life, you know, the Daily Stoic 365 ways um, 
yeah, the happiness is in that title somehow. Um, and so I, I was hooked. I bought the books, I started reading, and the rest is history, as they say. I mean, I just got deeper and deeper into it, and it, you know, it's transformed my life. I've heard from so many people that it has transformed their lives. And a lot of the people that I talk to say, oh, I wish I had found this sooner. You know, I wish that I had known about this when I was in college. And so part of what I was trying to do when I wrote the book was to share this with people who had just never heard of stoicism, who had never been exposed to it. You know, it it doesn't have stoicism in the title, so it's not necessarily directed to people who are already convinced stoics, although I do have a lot for them as well. But yeah, it's just one of those things that when you when you discover how wonderful it is, you want to share it with everyone. I love the idea of the search, and I, I'm fascinated by this moment. There's a quote that's attributed to the Buddha that I, I came across the, in the last couple of years. It's like, a moment can change a day, a day can change a life. I'm really curious, like that moment, which... Many of us parents, many parents that are that are listening can probably resonate with, with that feeling. But why type in wisdom? One of the reasons I started this podcast was out of curiosity. I, I feel like I'm in search of wisdom. But it's also not a word that is necessarily talked about. I don't remember hearing wisdom throughout school or and things like that. So why wisdom and not parenting or happiness or, or something else. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And that's something that I think we all want to change is to kind of bring wisdom back into the conversation, right? So I appreciate your effort in that direction. For me, um, I think it had always kind of been in the background. It's funny, after mm-hmm. I published this book, my grandmother sent me a poem I had written as a 10-year-old about looking for wisdom. <laughs> So I I think I was a very strange 10-year-old, but um, it's just kind of been in the background. And, you know, as I got caught up in life, you know, trying to establish a career, doing travel, you know, all the fun options that are out there for all of us today kind of went into the background. And then when I hit that crisis point, I realized, wait, I need something here. You know, when you become Mm -hmm. a parent, you suddenly realize that you're not in this just for yourself. You have to provide guidance for your children as well. You have to provide a, you know, an environment for them to grow up in. And so I think that's what really forced me to think about what, what I needed most in life at that point. And it wasn't more social status. It wasn't you know, a better job or anything. It was actually wisdom. So I think that's what brought it to the fore for me. Well, I love that. And let's transition into the book. So for the listeners... It's Tranquility, Parenting, A Guide to Staying Calm, Mindful, and Engaged. So how do you define tranquility? Why is that the title? Well, it's something that all parents are kind of longing for. <laughs> um, and at the very beginning, I mentioned that we said we sort of have this view in our minds of, oh, you know, I'm going on a retreat. I'm going to be sitting on a peaceful mountaintop meditating. And that's kind of the view of tranquility that we all sort of long for subconsciously when we're up at 2 a.m. changing dirty diapers. But that's not actually the type of tranquility that we need. (laughs) You know, it's certainly not feasible in our everyday lives. You go on a retreat, 
you know, the, the effects are awesome, but you come back and you're still changing dirty diapers at 2 a.m., right? So the type of tranquility that stoicism offers us is the internal tranquility that comes with focusing on the right things in life, knowing what's important, developing that good character. So this type of tranquility, as the famous quote from Marcus Aurelius points out, Marcus says, people look for retreats in the countryside when all you have to do is look inside yourself. It's available for you all the time. So it's that idea of tranquility that we're going for as parents in tranquility parenting. And one of the things that you open up with in the in the book, and you talk quite a bit about something I'm I'm passionate about, is is this idea of a of a philosophy of life. So you talk about that, and also a parenting philosophy. Your philosophy mm. of life is your parenting philosophy, and I like to bring that up with parents because you know when you become a parent. Probably most of us start scouring the internet. We buy all these parenting books. We're like, oh, I have no idea what to do. How do you raise a kid? So we go and read everything we can find. And one very popular notion in the parenting literature is a parenting philosophy. I had never heard people really talking about philosophy until I read parenting books. So there's this notion out there that you should have a parenting philosophy, which which is great. You know, it's great to have that. But the more I got into life philosophy, stoicism, the more I realized that the parenting philosophies that I saw on offer were a lot of times very shallow and kind of disconnected from what you might be doing as outside your life as a parent. You know, it's like you say this with your child, you make sure they do X, Y, Z. It was kind of detached from our overall life values or the way that we're living. And that's exactly the opposite of how it should be. You know, we, we need to develop that life philosophy first so that we know who we are as people. And then mm. everything else just flows out of that. So we don't have separate philosophies for being a parent, for being a professional, for being a community member. It's all one package. And of course, that's what stoicism offers. So when you have your, your life philosophy as a person in place, it's much easier to make decisions as a parent, both big and small decisions. So, you know, what activities do I sign my child up for? Do I sign my child up for activities? How do I discipline? What kind of techniques am I going to use? Where should my child go to college? You know, should I send them to public or private school? Every single decision you make, big or small, is going to come out of your life philosophy. So it, it's all a, a consistent and coherent package. For someone listening that may be new to the idea of a, of a philosophy of life, what would you say are some of the, the key attributes? Yeah, well, obviously, it's not just stoicism. That's a philosophy of life. And I do like to emphasize that I don't expect everyone that I meet or everyone who listens to this interview to go out and say, oh, I'm going to become a stoic. You know, it's not for everyone, but I do encourage everyone to develop their own philosophy of life. So it's those big picture questions, you know, what's important in your life? I think that's the main thing that sets, for example, stoicism apart from other life philosophies is, is answering what's important in life. Um, but there are different ways to answer that question. And I think, you know, whether it's through a different religion, a different philosophy, just however, whatever makes sense to you, you need to understand in your own mind 
what you believe, why you believe it, and then be able to adhere to that in your daily life. So I would strongly encourage everyone, even if stoicism in particular doesn't appeal to you, you know, sit down and make a list of what is important. If you have a life partner that you're raising your child with, definitely sit down with them as well. But just just going through this exercise can help you identify, you know, where what's important to you and then that influences what's important to your child as well and how you interact with them on a daily basis. So I would say it's mainly about a, a values clarification might be a good way of putting mm. it. Mm. Um, you know, you can bring in other big questions about, you know, what happens after death, relationships between people. There are other things that come into it, but just establishing what matters most in life is probably where I would say a life philosophy should start. How do you think about the idea of, I want to say, realistic expectations, um, and maybe that's not the best term, but sometimes I, I think of that when it comes to maybe the behavior of a three-year-old, which I have a three-year-old, of asking the question, you know, is are my expectations aligned with really how the world works or how a three-year-old behaves? But does that apply also to a philosophy of life, you know, what's important, ensuring that that aligns with, with how the world works? Yeah, I'd like to answer the first part of your question first regarding expectations. And I'm going to answer this in two parts. One, expectations for parents, for themselves, and then Great. expectations for children. So expectations of parents, as we all know, there is a ton of judgment out there. <laughs> You know, a lot of times people will, will adopt one parenting style or one mm -hmm. way of doing things and then say, this is the right way. And everyone else who doesn't do that is wrong. <laughs> you know, we've all experienced judgment from other people. And so stoicism can really help us to deal with those judgments by saying, you know what, I, I just can't listen to everybody else out there. They might think they're trying to help me. They might not. They might, they might be mm -hmm. being mean. They might be trying to help whatever it is that they're doing. That doesn't matter. I'm doing what I think is best for my child and my specific situation. And when you do have your philosophy of life to back you up on that, you know, it's not like you just randomly decided to do something, right? You've thought it through, you have answered these important questions, and then the daily decisions that you make come from that. So you have your reasons, you know, and you're doing what you think is best in your situation. So it helps us to ignore the haters, you know, ignore all the people who say we're doing it wrong. We're doing what we think is best based on a considered uh, look at, at all the options. So that's expectations for ourselves. Um, also, we shouldn't expect ourselves to be perfect. Obviously, there's no such thing as a perfect parent. We will make mistakes. It is 100% guaranteed that I will make mistakes and you and every parent listening. And so we need to adjust our expectations for ourselves as well, which can be hard. You know, I certainly have perfectionistic tendencies. Probably some of your listeners can relate to that. And, and we just have to say, you know what? Today I made a mistake. We have to apologize to anyone impacted, including your kids. I apologize to my kids all the time. That's modeling uh, humility and modesty for them, as well as how you respond when you make a mistake. So, you know, you can think about that in terms of um, not just from your own character, but also modeling how your kids can handle adversity and, and hardship in the future. So 
you know, don't think that you have to be perfect. If you become a stoic, you will not do everything perfectly. Expectations for children. Um, I do think there's a tendency today for us to fit everything into boxes. You know, you, you read the timelines, the developmental milestones, and you start worrying like at six months, oh, my child hasn't started crawling yet. He must be behind, you know, at age one. Oh, my child doesn't have a vocabulary of 50 words yet. It, you know, do I need to be concerned? So it's very, very, we have these very, very rigid developmental ideas in mind. And I'm not saying that those are not valuable because they are valuable as, you know, general guideposts. But I think that there's so much pressure on parents to make their children perform. Um, And it's anxiety inducing for parents when we see that our child doesn't fit exactly into this perfect little box and isn't ticking all those developmental milestones. Of course, it's anxiety inducing for the child. If you are trying to force them to do something that they are just not developmentally ready to do. I think um, there used to be a much greater appreciation for differences, if that makes sense, for uh, differential development. People weren't sitting there looking at those milestones. Their child kind of walked when they walked and talked when they talked. And we have a much greater awareness today of, you know, if something is amiss that we can get help early and that's awesome. But I think we might've gone just a little bit too far and we're, we're so stressed out about that. So I don't know if that answers your question. No, it definitely does. And I I think that's really, really helpful. One of the things that can be challenging, whether it's parenting books or just life in general, which you kind of talk about, it's the situations are complicated. When I think of wisdom, whether it's from stoicism, these timeless lessons, there's a lot of themes and consistent things that come up in various different wisdom traditions. Uh, To me, it looks like there's a lot of similarities. But when it comes to maybe some modern parenting books, they can sometimes really contradict and say different things, and not that either necessarily one is wrong, but again, it's it's complicated, and it makes it very, very challenging. I completely agree, and that's one reason, going back to this idea of philosophy of life, is where we start, and then we can decide which parenting philosophy goes, you know, goes along with that. Um, That was one of the biggest challenges when I started out, you know, do you going to the crib, you know, do you let your child cry it out or do you not? So I, maybe that's kind of what you were talking about with the completely opposite approaches. And I think parents can take some comfort that a lot of studies that have followed children, you know, they're now in college and they looked at whether their parents used one approach or the other have found very little difference. So I think we tend to emphasize these, um, kind of more superficial, not, not completely superficial, but, you know, more of the activities instead of going back to the core, you know, what your approach is when you interact with your child. Are you in general warm and loving? Are, do you provide unconditional love? Or are you standing over there, you know, um, inducing anxiety in your child that they have to perform and meet your expectations or, they won't receive your love. Obviously, we would never, ever want to do that. Um, So I think 
I think there might be too much focus today on those kind of more external manifestations of parenting mm. rather than going back to the essence of being a good person and then letting your your intentions and your actions flowing from that. Tended to think that any good book is a parenting book. So it's like William Irvine, Guide to the Good Life, love it. It's a parenting book <laughs> if you take if you take that next step to integrate it into your parenting. What I loved about reading your book is you do that. You take the step of of integrating it into some of these common situations that that come up as parents. One thing that I remember from the book is this idea of of being in line at the grocery store and of course right at the checkout eye level for for all the little ones, all sorts of candy and and things like that. But I like how you talked about that particular situation and the four cardinal virtues. So I, I thought it could be helpful to the listeners to maybe go through these uh, four cardinal virtues and talk about the integration of them in, in real life as, as a parent. Um, so my kids, when I wrote the book, my kids were one, three, and five. So prime tantruming age. They are now five, seven, and nine. So I've had a chance to you know, apply these lessons for a while and see how they've grown with the kids. And I can say I'm very happy with, with how it's going so far. So the four cardinal virtues in Stoicism are wisdom, justice, self-control, and courage. So going back to the situation where you're in the grocery store and you think your child is about to start tantruming or, you know, they're begging you for something. I think the biggest upsetting, the most upsetting part of that situation for many people is the social judgment that's coming around. You know, it's different dealing with a tantrum in your own home where there's nobody cares if your child is screaming um, versus a social situation like that. So what stoicism can help us do is use our wisdom to say, okay, what in this situation is under my control? You know, obviously, and this is something we can talk more about later, but the distinction between controlling your child versus influencing your child, your brain is not actually guiding their body, right? You don't physically have control over them. Yes, you do have responsibility for them. You can certainly influence them and you should definitely try to influence them. But we have to give up on this idea that we actually control our children. So, so wisdom will help us to decide what in the situation we do control, what's important in this situation. Courage, you might need courage to face the wrath of people behind you, you know, staring you down. And, and in the book I mentioned, and I still completely believe that if people are very judgmental and negative and kind of, um, you know, just maybe not the nicest people, those people are the ones who are going to be staring daggers at you saying, oh, why can't this person control their child? You know, the, the sympathetic people are going to be like kind of nodding like, oh, yeah, I've, I've been there. You know, kids, that's what kids do. You know, so those people who are acting really rude towards you, <clears throat> do you really need to value their opinion? If they're the kind of person who goes around being mean to people, why should you value their opinion? That, you know, they're not the kind of person that you are really concerned about. So people who are kind are going to be kind to you in that situation. People who are not so kind, yeah, don't worry about them. Uh, so wisdom, uh, justice, you know, you certainly want to treat your child fairly. You 
you do want to try to calm your child. It's not that you're acting like you don't care, right? You do want to take the other people around you into consideration. You're doing your best here. You're not just casually letting your child rake all the candy off the shelves or anything like that. That would not be just. So you're doing your best, but you definitely need that courage to to stand up to you know, the, the people who are who might not be helping in the situation. And self-control, um, you know, that's something that every parent needs a hefty dose of when it comes to dealing with our own frustration and our own knee-jerk reactions might be to just buy the child candy just to get them quiet. But in the end, that might not be the best thing. So we do need to bring in that self-control as well, uh, along with our wisdom to determine the best course of action. I love that. I think it's so well said and just ties in these virtues, how they're interconnected, always working together. You can't necessarily only apply one and and be uh, effective. Absolutely. But how about wisdom and love? Like, you know, justice is not necessarily the... Um, the best, I guess, translation in the English language, maybe it's fairness or kindness. But how about wisdom in in love and using this tradition to to maybe become a more compassionate person? Mm-hmm. Well, I'll talk about it in the context of parenting, but it all goes back to where does the idea of virtue come from in the first place? So this is one thing that I love to talk about is super important. You know, virtue didn't just come out of nowhere in Stoicism, right? It's actually based on observations about human flourishing and what enables us to flourish as humans. As you know, the ancient Greeks talked a lot about this. It wasn't just the Stoics. It was something that they all talked about in Greek philosophy. Eudaimonia, this idea of flourishing. How do we live you know, the life of an excellent human. So what we're talking about with flourishing is not just happiness like that comes and goes. It's not an emotion. It's a deep, rich mental state. It, it's a condition, a, a disposition, virtue. So it's something that's very deep. It's, it's a part of who you are. So in, in order to achieve this optimal flourishing condition, which is what we would all want, right? If we are able to, we all want to achieve this deep, lasting, rich happiness, this meaningful life, uh, especially those of us listening to the podcast here. So what the Greeks said about this and what the Stoics in particular said is, how do we figure out what leads to human flourishing? And one way that the Stoics answered this question was to look at human nature and say, okay, what distinguishes humans from other species? So Two of the things that you know are our most characteristic of our species are rationality and our sociability. We are obviously extremely intelligent compared to other animals. And I always like to mention, you know, the Greeks had a very kind of dichotomous view of animal intelligence, saying that humans are, you know, kind of worlds apart from other animals, we now know that there's more of a spectrum of animal intelligence. And a lot of animals do have certain kinds of intelligence that the ancient Greeks never gave them credit for. Nevertheless, you know, humans are certainly apart. We're at an extreme end of this spectrum of intelligence. And that goes hand in hand with our sociability. So we are completely social creatures. If you think about humans always live in groups, 
a human infant is so completely helpless. You know, a child would never survive without intense care from parents and other caregivers for a dozen or more years of life, right? So we wouldn't even survive without other people. We are obviously meant to live in groups. We always live in groups, whether we're talking about families, tribes, communities, nations, at whatever level, we are very social. So these two aspects of of humanity really make us who we are, and this is what enables us to flourish. So if we look at, at these two characteristics and we say, how can we be the best human possible? This is when we reach this rich, flourishing happiness, eudaimonia. So in order to do that, um, you know, we're, we go back to this idea of love of parents for their children. In fact, the ancient Stoics believed that this is the foundation of all human sociability and love is the love of a parent for their child. It's the foundation. It wasn't just the Stoics. You know, I've, I've read this in Buddhism as well. A lot of uh, modern psychologists are coming around to this idea as well. So, I mean, it's pretty obvious, but, (laughs) but, um, so, so that was the foundation. And from there we can learn to love other people as well. So it's that kind of selfless love where you're not in it to get something for yourself. It's, it's more of just, you love the other person for who they are and you love them because it comes naturally to humans. So it's not an instrumental type of thing. It's, this is how we flourish as people. When you give love to someone else, particularly a child, but it could be anybody. When you give that love, that's where you find your happiness. That's when you flourish. So basically all of Stoic ethics is built on this idea of love. And the example par excellence for the Stoics was parents and children. Thank you so much for that. I'm really curious about when it comes to the idea of love and compassion, you know, there's there's an idea in, in Christianity of, of like, do not harden your heart type of thing. And to me, it seems like stoicism is is a tradition that can help us to to do the opposite, to soften soften our hearts and get beyond our ourselves. Whether it's you know expanding um, the circles, which maybe you can talk about, or this idea of just being connected with with everyone. Yes. So the technical term in stoicism is oikiosis. And again, it refers to this idea that I just discussed, where we learn how to care for other people in an altruistic way. Um, But at the same time, we realize that we are part of a much larger cosmos and community of other people, of the wider world around us, including our earth, you know, the plants and animals. So part of becoming wise, and I believe this is true for any wisdom tradition, not just stoicism, but any wisdom tradition. Um, because a lot of a lot of sages use the same analogy of the expanding circles. I know Confucius used that. I see it pop up a lot of times when I read, you know, just random books on wisdom. Um, so I, I think this image of the concentric circles is so valuable. Where you might picture yourself in the center, and you begin by learning to truly love the people closest to you. You know, your closest family members. And then you're able to expand that altruistic uh, feeling of care, and compassion, and concern, where you truly feel like you belong to to the other people. You know, we have 
today, I think we have some issues with alienation within society. A lot of people feel alienated from others. You might feel close to your own family, but you might feel alienated from broader society. Or some people might even feel alienated from the people that they're living with. You know, alienation can happen mm-hmm. anywhere. Um, alienation is this feeling of not feeling emotionally close, not feeling like you belong to each other, not caring about the person. Unfortunately, it can happen even if you live in the same neighborhood with someone or even the same home that you no longer feel emotionally close, like you don't care about them. Well, for Stoics, the opposite of alienation is oikiosis, right? So it's this feeling of bringing each other closer where we're, we're belonging to each other. We're actually developing that, that feeling of closeness. So, you know, there's the famous illustration of Hierocles, who was a later Roman Stoic, not really known for anything much except for this <laughs> idea of oikiosis of how do we, how do we feel closer to others? How do we bring them within our sphere of care? And, and it's awesome. You know, there's the traditional meta meditation in Buddhism where you can do this. And that works in Stoicism as well, where you're feeling loving kindness for other people. Um, everyone. So eventually, you know, you start with the people who are closest to you and eventually with practice, with time. And I should also mention not just meditation, but integrating it into your daily practice. So when you go to the supermarket, you practice feeling compassion or love, non-judgment for all of the people that you see, all of the people around you. You have to integrate it into your daily routines as well. It's not something that you just do at home. You don't sit and read Marcus Aurelius at home, have a quick five-minute meditation, and then go off into the world and forget about it. Absolutely not. That defeats the purpose, right? So with every action, every step that we take in the world, I like to see every interaction with another person as a step on our path toward virtue, right? It's helping us. And at the same time, we're helping others as well. So I guess that's kind of a very roundabout answer to your question. But I I do, again, going back to this idea of consistency and coherence, it's just all part of who we are and all of our activities every day. I, I love that. And I'll uh, I'll link something in the show notes so people can check it out if they want to see that, that visual image, because I think it's really helpful. Uh, I tend to think, like you're talking about, of how do we put this into practice, or what are the potential obstacles, you know, to putting it into practice. And something that connects, that you, you said a bit ago, was the idea of love and control. You're not in complete control of your child. And, and maybe there's an idea of, of desire. We have this desire for our child, you know, to maybe be in complete control or for them to behave a, a particular way. How do we work with control, maybe lessening desire as a parent? Anything come to mind, Brittany? Yeah. I mean, I think parents are responding naturally to the conditions of our society. I think we would all say (laughs) parenting conditions are not optimal right now, particularly with the pandemic going on. You know, that just forced parents to do 100% of the work, whereas before at least kids could go to school and we had a little bit more support. But it's just the culmination of, I think, a trend that's been going on for several decades where society kind of expects parents to do everything. You know, kids, we don't feel that our kids are safe to go ride their bikes around the community anymore. You know, we we do everything for them in very highly structured settings where we feel that we have to provide activities for them 
and, and we feel that pressure to always control them. So I think we have to be very aware of that pressure that's coming from outside and think very carefully about what we're doing as parents to prevent that. Um, because autonomy is extremely important for children, even from a young age, you know, they, they, we have to balance their need for autonomy for all the other things that we have to get done. And of course we have to get things done. They have to put their shoes on before we take them to school every day or before we go to work or whatever it is. There are certain things that we have to get done. So it's this conflict between society expects us to get them out the door at 7am every day with their teeth brushed, their shoes on, etc., versus children who, you know, are, didn't evolve to, to do that at age three, right? So we have to really balance these tensions. Now, I think there's obviously, it's always going to be a challenge. I unfortunately cannot offer you a magical answer here that will solve all your problems. It's always going to be a challenge. But thinking in terms of influence rather than control has really, really helped me. Um, and by influence, you know, that doesn't mean that you just step back and let your kid decide what to do, right? That's absolutely not what we're talking about. You are still the guiding influence in their lives. The strategies that you use might be fairly similar, but your outlook and the way that you implement them is going to shift. The minute you stop thinking about, I control my child, you have to do what I say, and you start thinking about, um, okay, well, I don't control my child, but I am a, a huge important figure in their life. And therefore I can find ways to get my child to get their shoes on. Right. So, so I think shifting that mindset is a really big step. And then of course, as your child gets older, it becomes even more important. My oldest child is nine now, so I, I don't have teenagers yet. I can't speak about that directly, but um, she's a very independent nine-year-old. So, so I think mm -hmm. as your child grows, that kind of more respectful relationship that you established at a younger age, it grows with you, right? So as your child is ready to take on new independence in whatever ways that might be, depending on their age and your situation, um, you know, your child is already used to you not being on their backs all the time, trying to control them. They don't have anything to rebel against, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that relationship is what is so crucial as your child gets older through the teenage years and even into adulthood is that you're showing mutual respect. So I guess when you mm. try to control someone, you're showing a lack of respect because you mm. believe that they don't, they can't handle it or they don't know what to do. You know, you're imposing your, your own will on them. Whereas if you show respect to your child, your child is much more likely to show respect to you, if that makes sense. Mm. For someone that might be new to like the idea of the dichotomy of control, how you're describing that, it connects with, for me, with William Irvine, how he talks about the trichotomy of control, these three, three columns. Do you find that helpful for people that are kind of new to some of these ideas to, to maybe pull out some sort of piece of paper and, and identify as an exercise of what do I have influence on? What do I not have any control over? And and do that because sometimes in the heat of the moment, it seems like it can get, unless you're really familiar and really experienced putting into practice, it can get a little fuzzy. Yes, I absolutely would recommend that as an exercise. Um, and I love William Irvin's book um, as 
I read it as my first book and I always recommend it as a first book for others because I think he does such an excellent job of going from zero, you know, zero stoicism. And by the end, you're convinced about why you should be a stoic. You know, he really presents it concretely um, for people who are not familiar with it at all. And I think his innovation of the trichotomy of control is one of those ways where he makes it kind of user-friendly. So the ancient Stoics, you know, it's a, it's a dichotomy. It comes from Epictetus, where he asks us to focus on what's up to us, as opposed to, you know, all those other things, people's opinions and the weather and, and everything that's going on outside of us. We don't control any of that. We do control our reactions to things and our own character. So I, I do like his trichotomy of control. Um, yes, pull out a piece of paper, do that. I think um, for me, the key is preparation, not just me. That's a, you know, a big part of stoicism as well, is being prepared for what the day might bring. So a lot of what you're doing, I would say stoicism, <laughs> at least for me, the way that I have been able to, to develop and practice it is about 95% preparation and maybe 5% dealing with the moment. Mm. So that preparation is crucial because what you're doing is getting yourself into the right frame of mind, the right mindset to handle the challenges that might come up. If you're already prepared to deal with that child's tantrum when you go into the supermarket, then you know exactly what to do. You're not surprised. You're not looking around saying, ah, what do I do? Panicking. You know, you already know what to do and you've thought through those values before it ever happens. So mm. spending that time preparing is crucial. And one thing that I talk about in my book, I know it sounds, you know, everyone is telling us, oh, you know, you do your 15 minutes of meditation a day. And as a parent, especially of young children, you don't have 15 minutes. You just don't have the time. And even if you did, you're so exhausted. The last thing you want to do is <laughs> philosophical exercises, right? So I've definitely been there. I know how hard it is. So one thing I recommend what I, what I found worked for me when I had those young children, when I was brushing my teeth, that was my time to think about the day, <laughs> you know, in the morning, I would think about maybe what lies ahead, even just those two minutes of, okay, what am I going to do today? What has this child been doing lately that I might need to work on? You know, it, mm -hmm. it just anchors that to your daily routine. You have to brush your teeth, right? You can't skip it. You got to brush your teeth. So use that time to think about your premeditation of adversity. And in the evening, you can use that time to just quickly review, okay, how did it go? Did that thing work? That thing that I planned, how did it go? Do I need to change it for tomorrow? How did I respond? So doing that preparation is crucial. Absolutely. I, I love it. It's a great idea of hitching it to an existing habit that's already there. I'm curious to ask, Brittany, that end of day review that is a important practice in stoicism. How do you work with and and navigate maybe some of those days when you when you miss the mark? How do you put into practice that forgiving yourself and, and moving on to do better the next day? Yeah, this I'm glad you asked that because it's essential for every parent. You know, I've in my journey, I, I've had days when I did mess up, and I can say that it does get better, you know, with time and practice, those moments are less and less. So I'm, I'm very happy about that. And that's one reason I'm excited to share stoicism with people. But those times when you do mess up, you know, first of all, you need to address your relationship with your child. 
if you're, if what you messed up on involved your child, make it right, you know, spend some time with them. Young children, um, you know, they, they don't understand if you ask for their forgiveness, but you can certainly go back and show that you're not angry with them at all. Older children are able to understand that. Um, so you need to model that. So fix, fix what happened first and just say, you know, I'm only human. I'm doing my best. Remember that time when you got frustrated? Well, that's how I felt today. And just like you're working to deal with your frustrations, I am too. So you're turning your own experience into a teachable moment for your child. Um, and you have to forgive yourself. Marcus Aurelius talks about this as well, forgiving yourself. You know, you have to remember that you're not a sage. Our goal, you know, we, we use the sage or the ideal wise person as a model to see where we're going in life. You know, that helps us direct our energy in the right direction. But nobody expects to be a sage. Even the ancient mm -hmm. Stoics from Zeno to Seneca to Marcus Aurelius, they all frankly said that they're not sages. They were just looking for wisdom like everyone else. They might be a few steps further on the path. But they weren't sages and neither are we. So don't hold yourself to impossible standards. Even if you, even if you mess up, the very fact that you realized you messed up is a step in the, dire the right direction. You know, and the very fact that you're lying there in bed thinking about it says a lot of good things about your character. Because you know, there are parents out there who don't care, who don't realize they messed up or don't acknowledge that. So the very fact that you are thinking about it means you're moving in the right direction. So let that be evidence of your, you know, your good parenting, that you're working on it and just keep working on it. Get back out there the next day and, and just keep going because we're all in the same boat. You're not alone. That is such an important point. Thank you so much for sharing that. The, for the listeners, that might be worth uh, rewinding and, and hearing again. Yeah, I love it. I wanted to ask, speaking of the ideal sage, I, I, if I heard correctly in a previous interview, uh, someone that you mentioned is the author Karen Armstrong, who I've just recently come to, uh, to find some of her work. Why is she the ideal sage for you? Oh, she's a role model for me. I, I don't necessary. I don't know her at all. So I don't know if she's a sage or not, but she is a role model. Yes. Um, maybe your listeners will be familiar with her because she's one of the most respected comparative religion historians out there. Just such a, a wise person. Um, I would also recommend the work of Pierre Hadot for anyone who's not familiar mm -hmm. with Hadot's work. Reading these, these two authors gives me a sense that, you know, they are looking you know, not for their own interests, but they're looking at the big picture. And I feel like that's what wisdom is. You alluded to this earlier that that wisdom is kind of getting outside of ourselves and not getting stuck in our own little, you know, petty day-to-day -day concerns, but kind of rising above and looking at the big picture of, you know, your whole life or the whole earth, all of society rising above. And that's definitely a major theme of stoicism. But this is also exemplified in the work of Karen Armstrong because she's surveying <laughs> you know, all of mm -hmm. the major religious traditions. One of her books that I love is about the axial age where she's looking at, you know, the developments that happened between 800 and 300 BC, I think is the timeline um, across the Eurasian continent. Um, she was very religious in her childhood. She became a nun at age 17. 
later left her convent and was kind of just drifting aimlessly until um, she, she did begin to write about religion and she started on a TV show and just kind of slowly reinvented herself and along the way was diagnosed with epilepsy, I believe close to age 40, which, you know, that's, that's very significant. And through it all, you know, she just kept searching. So I think that search for the truth, obviously we're here searching for wisdom mm-hmm. and that's what led Socrates on his search as well. So I, I think it's that quest and that ability to continually keep yourself open to new ideas and to learning new things and to not thinking that you know everything, <laughs> you know, to being willing to listen, willing to listen to, to other people and, and across traditions. I think that's what is really remarkable, remarkable about someone who is so broad-minded. So yes, highly recommend her work. And maybe it's worth saying something about the sage in in wisdom. Um, it, I'm reflecting back on a, the number of episodes that that we've done here, but I don't know if we've really talked so much about the sage or or wisdom. Like I think of, of Seneca and many others talking about it being extremely rare, like the phoenix, once every 500 years, and maybe that's the same for many different wisdom traditions. Maybe it's not a destination. It's nothing that you ever really get to. It's more of a a path that you're on. Maybe you could say a bit about that if you have any thoughts. Yeah, I think that's definitely true of Stoicism. Even Zeno, the founder of Stoicism, didn't say he was a sage in contrast to some other traditions. So uh, for the Stoics, it's all about correcting your judgment and developing good judgment and seeing things clearly. So when you learn to see things clearly, you're seeking the truth, right? We're trying to get rid of the the short-sightedness that often blinds us with regard to our own emotions and the, the things that are taking place in our own lives. We're trying to develop clear sight and to see things clearly. And so it's it's that quest that enables us to develop good judgment, which in turn allows us to eliminate the bad emotions. It all goes back to this quest for truth and wisdom and seeing things clearly. So obviously no one is ever going to be able to see perfectly clearly and have perfect judgment at every moment. That's what the Stoic sage would do. They would have figured out everything in life, everything that's important, everything that's worth knowing, and they would have solid judgments, solid, correct judgments about everything. Mm. Obviously, this is too high of a standard for any person to actually achieve. So that's why the the ancients said that the sage is as rare as the phoenix and may not have ever lived, or if they have lived, you know, it's once every 500-year event. But but like you said, it's it's the path that counts. And even though we may not achieve perfect wisdom and we may not become sages, we can still get closer than we were. I kind of think of it as like a boiling point, water reaching its boiling point. So water boils at 212 degrees Fahrenheit, 100 degrees Celsius. And the Stoic would say, you know, you're not completely virtuous until you reach that cutoff point, the boiling point, right? But even if we never reach 100 degrees Celsius, we can still get closer to it. Maybe right now we're at 25 degrees. Maybe we can get Mm. up to 50 
you know, maybe we can get up to 60, <laughs> right? So it's a matter of seeing how close we can get. And I can say from my own experience that the more I am able to have good judgment, the farther I go on this path, the happier and the richer my life is. So it's, mm. it's not an all or nothing prospect with regard to happiness. I won't be perfectly happy because I won't be perfectly wise, but I will be happier than I am now. I will have a better, more fulfilling life, and I will be able to have a better impact on my children and hopefully on my community as well. So it's not something that we should give up hope. You know, just mm -hmm. because you won't be perfect doesn't mean you don't try. You, you stay on the path and enjoy the journey. Maybe as a final question, and I'm, I'm very appreciative of your time, Brittany, what keeps this search going for you? I mean, if several years ago, typed in the word wisdom, and then today, it seems like the uh, the search is, is stronger than ever. Yeah, it is. I, again, it's just seeing that the transformation of my life, of my happiness level, of my energy level, negative emotions just eat up your energy. You know, the mm. self-pity, the frustration, the anger, it, it makes you tired. So getting rid of those negative emotions has given me new energy to pursue this. It's enabled me to enjoy my time with my children. You know, your time with your kids is special while they're young at home. It, having energy for that is important. So, the, you know, the more I go, the deeper I go in, the, the better I am as a person and as a parent. So that inspires me to just keep going. And where do you point people interested in, in learning more about you and connecting? I do have a couple of websites. One of them is stoicare.com, spelled with one C. And we have resources for all kinds of caregivers, not just parents, but teachers, medical professionals, prison staff. And we are putting on a conference in conjunction with Modern Stoicism and the Stoic Fellowship on April 23rd. It's called the Stoics Care Conference. We are super excited about it. It's going to showcase this kind of social and caring side of Stoicism. It's pretty much the first event, the first large-scale event that's taken place with this theme. And we have some excellent speakers. We have Donald Robertson doing the keynote about love and friendship in Stoicism. We have Kai Whiting talking about sustainability and some practical ways to be sustainable as a Stoic. We have Paul Wilson, who's a mental health expert, talking about stoic self-care, which is very important for caregivers, as we know. Um, we have Meredith Coons talking about compassionate stoicism. And Will Johncock is going to speak about the theoretical aspect of why do stoics care and how does this connect with the philosophy. We'll also have a meet and greet. So if you'd like to actually connect and talk with other attendees and meet other people who are in your same situation, other parents, or if you have another caregiving role, we're super excited about bringing people together to actually talk with each other about this, right? Because mm -hmm. it doesn't get enough airtime. Yeah. So, you know, finding out how other people are handling this and maybe building a, a community based on that. So we're super excited about that. Well, that sounds awesome. We'll link it in the show notes so you can get right to that. I highly recommend everybody check it out. Brittany, thank you so much for coming on In Search of Wisdom. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was fun. Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. 
And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. Until next time, be wise and be well.